Morning. Good morning. It is indeed a joy to be gathered together this morning to worship our Lord. For those of us, those of you who might not know me, I'm Dietrich Kaufman. Uh, we are your missionaries. We serve in the country of Guinea, West Africa, and uh, we've been invited here uh, to, to spend time. We've been hanging out at Papa D and Nan's house and getting spoiled. Uh, I'm sure many of you know how that is. So this morning we're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy. So as you take your Bible or your phone or your device and turn to 1 Timothy, I want to ask us a question. Certainly there were excitement and joy about the peace that you had by being in a right relationship with Christ. I think there's also a lot of questions when we're new in the faith. What is the church? What does the church do? What are we to be about? And I think COVID uh, just highlights that even more, right? You have, I know some churches in Colorado have already shut down. They've been shut down since March and they haven't opened back up. And then we have pastors like John MacArthur making the news saying, no, church is essential. We're going to stay open. And he's fighting in the courts. I think we're just going to Good. Okay. So as we think about church and what is essential and what is the priority of the church, many things boil to the surface. You hear different people say, well, come to the church and have community. That's, that's the priority of the church. Others will say, well, come to the church and let's glorify God. And that's the priority of the church. All of these things are right. But Timothy also, or Paul in Timothy has us something else to say about what the priority of the church is that I want us to see today. As we look at 1 Timothy, Paul is penning this letter to Timothy, his child, his mentee, his disciple in the faith. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul reminds Timothy, or he tells Timothy why it is that he's writing this letter. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14, he says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. How is it that, what is it that Paul is going to tell us? How is it that we are to conduct ourselves in the church? What is the priority of the church? What we're going to see today in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verses 1 to 7, is that the priority of the church is to be a great commission people. Paul tells Timothy, and therefore us, the priority of the church is to be a great commission people. Let's read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, 
the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Let's pray this morning. Father, we do love you, and we thank you for your word. We come before it now, and we just pray and ask that we would continue to be in a, in a state and in a heart and in an attitude of worship, that your name would be praised and glorified through the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, we come before you, and we ask that you help us as we uh, look at the word, that you would help us to see it for what it is, that you would help us to apply it to our lives, and Father, that you would expose for us what is here in the scripture. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we see here is that Paul is telling us that the priority of the church as a great commission people is prayer. We see the priority of prayer. When we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, he starts off with the phrase, first of all. And we see this first of all, this word here, it can carry the idea of first in a series, or it can carry the idea of first in priority or first in importance. And the normal, the most common use of this word is the first in priority or importance. So Paul says the, the priority or the first thing of importance then is that I urge you to make entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, that these be made on behalf of all men. So we see that the priority of the church is to be on prayer, but what kind of prayer is it supposed to be? Well, there's, there's a little word in verse 1. Right after he says, first of all, he says, then. And when we see then, we need to think about therefore. So he's building an argument on something that he has already said. So flipping your Bibles back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and in verse 15, Paul writes, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Based on this truth, based on the reality that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, the priority of the church then is to pray for all men. This idea also is highlighted when we look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. After he's talked about prayer, he says in verse 3, This is good and acceptable. These prayers for all men is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So what we see that here in this plea, this urging, this mentioning that the priority of the church is prayer for all men, he bookends this with the gospel message. Chapter 1, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Verse 3, this is acceptable because Jesus desires all men to be saved. So this isn't just any kind of prayer that the church is to be praying. This isn't a self-centered, self-seeking prayer for others with a motivation that is actually for ourselves that the church should be praying. Rather, these, are heart, these should be heartfelt, genuine prayers for the salvation of others. And we rightfully hear this verse most often in the context of praying for our leaders. And that's right, because that's what Paul is calling us to do. Pray for all men, kings and all who are in authority. But before he mentioned kings, what does he mention? Let prayers be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. How does, how does Paul use this word all in this context? We already mentioned it a little bit at the end of verse 1. He says all men. Verse 2, 
all who are in authority. Verse 4, that all men, his desire is that all men be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Verse 6, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul doesn't just have in view here in this scripture the leaders of our country, whether it be the local leaders here in Huntington, whether it be the, at the county level, at the state level, at the country level, whether it be the, the, the president of Guinea. He has in view here that we pray prayers for all men. And even this word all, it takes us back to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of who? All nations. It's interesting to think about who the king and the authority was when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. The most likely leader of the Roman world when Paul penned this letter was Nero. I don't know if you know anything about Nero, but he was a bad dude. He was the great persecutor of the church. In fact, Church history tells us that Nero, in order to light his gardens at his palace, he would take Christians and light them on fire alive to light his gardens. How does this inform us about who God is, Paul is telling us to pray for as the church? When he says all men, kings and all who are in authority, he's urging us to pray even for our enemies. You pray for Nero, who's burning you alive in the garden. Brings us back to Jesus' words, right? You've heard it said. But I tell you, love your enemies. So who is it that you're praying for? Who is it that I'm praying for? Am I praying for all men? Am I praying for my unbelieving friends, my unbelieving family, my unbelieving coworkers? Am I praying for unbelievers in foreign lands? Am I praying for my enemies? Are you praying for those you disagree with? We just came through a political season. Am I praying for Democrats? Am I praying for Republicans? Am I praying for Trump who's still in office? Am I praying for Biden who it looks like is going to be in office come January? Are you praying for Muslims? Are you praying for Buddhists? Are you praying for animists? Are you praying for atheists? You see, Paul here is calling us to pray for all spheres of society. From those who are at the top of society, those who are in positions of authority, those who are in positions of leadership, all the way down to the person who's living on the street, who's a drug addict. The priority of the church is to pray for all men. It's interesting here. I want us to see a, a key aspect of Paul's exhortation as it relates to these prayers. Because he grounds his argument in his own experience. Look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul says, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. 
It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. And yet, for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying, me as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, a violent aggressor of the church, God's mercy was great enough to reach down even to me. I came into the faith to be an example that there is no one who is too far gone that God cannot save. And this, this causes us to look at an outward focus. This means that as a Great Commission people and as our priority is on prayer, it means that we must confidently pray for others to come to faith. That means imams. That means terrorists. That's what Paul was to the early church. He was a terrorist. We pray for our unbelieving family. We pray for our unbelieving father-in-laws. As we talk about terrorists, we pray for our mother-in-laws. Sorry, that was a bad joke. We pray for the Konyanke people. But that also causes us to look inwardly as well. I don't know what kind of baggage you've brought in here this morning. I don't know what kind of guilt is eating you up. But there is no sin you have committed. There is no place too far that you have gone that God's grace, just like Paul, cannot reach down to you today. And His grace and mercy can be applied to your life. And you can enter into relationship with the King. As we think about this, I want us to, I want us to challenge us to, to think about our hands for a minute. When we're kids and our mothers and our fathers are teaching us how to pray, often what does it involve? It involves our hands, right? Fold your hands, close your eyes, stop touching your sister. Let's pray, right? So I want to challenge us this morning, whether it's now, whether it's later. In the same way that Paul is calling us to pray for all spheres of society, from those at the highest level all the way down to those at the lowest level, we need to think about prayer as a priority of the church in spheres as well. We need to be praying as an individual. We need to be praying as a couple. We need to be praying as a family unit. We need to be praying as a life group. We need to be praying corporately as Huntington First Baptist for the lost. We need a plan to do that. So I want to challenge you to think about your left hand. How many fingers do you have? Hopefully all of us have five still. An easy way to do this is assign a name of a person to each finger of that hand. Anytime you look at your hands, anytime you fold your hands in prayer, let that be a reminder. I'm praying for Vamuri Kamara to come to faith. Imam in Besuba. I'm praying for my friend Seduba to come to faith. Praying for my brother-in-law Matt doesn't know the Lord, to come to faith. Praying for the man who was who the best man in my wedding, Tyron, doesn't know the Lord. He needs to come to faith. Okay? Easy reminder. Something tangible right in front of us. The second thing we're going to see here is that the goal of evangelistic prayer 
is the salvation of all men. The goal of evangelistic prayer is the salvation of all men. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute. When you look at the scripture, it says we pray for all men, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. Isn't that the goal of our prayers? I think this is where the church has often made error. Because that message, if that's how we understand this passage, is not consistent with biblical Christianity, and it's certainly not consistent with what Paul writes. Let's look at a couple of verses that will highlight this, of, of why this is inconsistent, why this cannot be the ultimate goal of our salvific prayers for others. I know you guys have recently been in a series in 2 Timothy, so these verses will be familiar with you to you. But flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 8. Paul again writes Timothy. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But what? Join me in suffering for the gospel. Flip over to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 3. Paul writes it even simpler. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. But you do the work of an evangelist, or sorry, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What is it that Paul is encouraging Timothy to do then? Is he encouraging him, hey, you pray for others so that you have an easy life? That's not what he's saying. Sam, I'm in prison. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of me either because I'm in prison. Rather, do your work for the kingdom and suffer with me. Perhaps Paul writes it most clearly in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. He says, It has been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only that you should believe in him, but that you should suffer for him. So if this tranquil and quiet life is not the goal of prayer for others, how is it that we are to understand this statement in 1 Timothy chapter 2? And I want to offer us three ways this morning that we can understand this statement. How is it that we can rightly understand so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity? The first thing I want to offer this morning is that I believe that this is a prayer for a peaceful society. Because we know all throughout church history that the church grows and spreads and flourishes under persecution. But we also know when the larger society as a whole is thrown into upheaval, that that spread often stops. If we look no further than our own history here in the United States, we rightly have a high view of the Revolutionary War. It founded our country. But you know what else it did? God had started a great awakening, a great revival. People were coming to the faith. started in the 1740s. The Revolutionary War essentially single-handedly stopped that great awakening because there was an upheaval of the larger society as a whole. So I believe this is a prayer for a peaceful society, one that is conducive 
for the growing and the spread of the gospel throughout the society. Second of all, I think this should be viewed as an outcome or a byproduct of the outcome rather than the goal. This tranquil life, this quiet life, living in godliness and dignity is an outcome or a byproduct of the salvation of all men. It's not the goal. If we have believing societies, if we have a believing Huntington, Texas, if we have a believing, what county are you in? Angelina County. I actually knew that. I just forgot. If we have a believing society, that will be conducive to us having a quiet, tranquil, godly life. But I think third of all, and perhaps most importantly, this statement should be viewed in light of our sanctification. Because prayer is a vital part of our sanctification process. Selfless prayers for others plays a role in producing in us godliness. It plays a role in producing in us selflessness. It plays a role in producing in us dignity. So when Paul is saying pray for all people, I think he's saying you pray for all people so that these prayers lead you to being conformed to Christ. And as you're conformed to Christ, you will live in society in a tranquil way. You will live in society in a quiet way. You will live in society in a godly way. You will live in society in a dignified way. So again, if the priority of a Great Commission people is the prayer of salvation for all men, how are we to understand this then? Verse 3 gives us the key. Verse 3 begins with, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God. These prayers for the salvation of all men, these prayers for kings and all who are in authority, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Why? Because it falls in line with His will. Because He tells us right here, God desires all men to be saved. So when we are praying for the salvation of others, we are submitting ourselves to the will of God in our prayers. And it's interesting, close-knit groups like churches tend to be. It's very easy for us to get inwardly focused. And yet God's saving purposes demand that we be outwardly focused when it comes to the mission of the church. And all men here brings that into focus in verse 4. He desires all men to be saved. We cannot be an inwardly focused people if we have in view God's vision for the nations, when it says all men, all people. This brings us to the third big idea that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2. The goal of salvific prayer requires a gospel witness. The goal of salvific prayer, which is the salvation of all men, requires a gospel witness. The first evidence we see of this is in chapter 2, verse 4, in the latter part. It says, where he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. You see, in order for a person to be saved, 
They must understand the truth of the gospel. We are saved by faith in Christ, yes. But how do we learn about Christ? Romans 10, 17 tells us what? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. You have to have a set knowledge base to understand the gospel. Well, then the question is, well, what is the truth of the gospel then that a person must know to be saved? Well, thankfully, Paul also tells us that in this passage. Look at verse 3. What is the gospel? Verse 3, first of all, God is our Savior. This is probably a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but we did just come through a political season. The Republican Party is not our Savior. The Democratic Party is not our Savior. I'm probably stepping on some toes. Donald Trump is not our Savior. Joe Biden is not our Savior. God is our Savior. What else is the gospel? Look at verse 5. For there is one God. There is one God. There's only one true God. They're not Buddha. It's not Muhammad. There's not the Big Bang. There's one God. Verse 5 again. There is one mediator between man and God. There's not multiple ways to come to salvation. There's only one way to come to salvation. We need a mediator because our sin separates us from God. And our sin is offensive to God. Because of that, our relationship is broken with Him. And that places God's wrath on man. And that's why it says that Jesus died as a ransom. He paid the price. He satisfied God's wrath on the cross. There's only one way for that wrath to be satisfied. And that's through the blood of Jesus. When it says here that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, it reveals that all men from the highest of society, those who are in positions of authority, all the way down to the lowly of the lowest, everybody if they are going to be saved, is going to be saved through Christ. Your Christian pedigree, you're a deacon, you're a pastor, you're a deacon's son, you're a pastor's son, your family's at church. I know you guys don't do Sunday nights anymore, but the, the traditional Southern Baptist, hey, we were in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every time the doors were open. That doesn't save you. Your baptism doesn't save you. Your membership here at Huntington First Baptist doesn't save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ will save you. Another aspect of the gospel we see here that we've mentioned already is that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, verse 6. And this puts an emphasis on the will of Jesus, that he voluntarily self-offered himself as a sacrifice. It reminds us of John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. No one took Jesus' life from him when he died as a ransom. Rather, he gave his life of his own volition in accordance with God the Father's will and his plan for salvation of all men. 
There's an interesting thing that comes up here at the end of verse 6 as well. It says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, and then it says what? The testimony given at the proper time. How is it that we should understand this phrase here? Really, it should be understood that Jesus' offering himself as a ransom should be viewed as the focal point of redemptive history. All of, Je- all of redemptive history is pointing to the work of Jesus on the cross. The Old Testament saints were saved by faith, what? For them looking forward to the yet promised Savior. We today are what? We are saved by now looking back to what the Savior accomplished on the cross. We are all saved by faith, and yet the focal point is Jesus' work on the cross. I think Galatians 4, 4 through 5, puts it this way. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. First of all, then, God has already borne witness to this saving faith that is in Jesus Christ. Jesus' death on the cross was His testimony of Jesus being the mediator. We have a part to play, too. Paul says in verse 7, For this message, for this gospel, for this I was appointed a preacher. The word preacher here literally means herald. It is for this gospel message that I am a herald. I am a proclaimer. It underscores the fact that Paul was simply passing on the message that had been entrusted to him. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. It's hard, this is one of those passages that's hard to jump in the middle of, but we're going to do it anyway. He says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul was entrusted this gospel message, and he's now just simply acting as a herald in accordance to what he has been entrusted. Flip over again real quick to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 and verse 3. Titus chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul says there as well, But at the proper time, Manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. This word entrusted always has conditions with it. Think about your relationship with your bank. What do you do when you take your money to the bank? You're entrusting it to them, are you not? And you guys have an agreed upon understanding of what's going to happen with that money. It's going to gain interest at a certain percentage rate, hopefully. They're going to keep it safe. Nobody's going to steal it. As you entrust them your money, they have a responsibility of what they're going to do with that money. And the gospel message is the same way. All of us who are believers have been entrusted the gospel message. And as those who have been entrusted the gospel message, there are conditions to what we've been entrusted to. We are to guard it, Paul writes Timothy. We are to proclaim it. The expectation is that all believers will respond in the same way as Paul by heralding the message they have been entrusted. 
2 Timothy 1, verse 13 and 14, Paul writes it this way. He tells Timothy to retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The sound words, the treasure that Timothy has been entrusted is the gospel message. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says it this way. Just as it is written, we believed, therefore we speak. The expectation is that if you believe in Christ, you will speak the gospel to others. This is why you as a church are taking trips to Guinea, Africa, to the Konyanke people. Because you've taken serious this command to be a great commission people who prays for the lost, who prays for their salvation. And you've understood that the goal of the salvific prayers for others requires, it demands a gospel proclamation. This is why we've spent a week of focus on prayer for international missions. Because we take seriously what Paul has written to Timothy here. The priority of the church is to pray for the salvation of the lost. This is why we have an emphasis at Christmas time for Lottie Moon Christmas offering. It's to support 3,600 missionaries to be able to proclaim the gospel, to herald this same gospel message which, which we, with which we have been entrusted to the lost. And lastly, Paul tells us here, how is it that we are to pray? How is it that we are to proclaim this gospel message? Look down with me one more time to 1 Timothy chapter 2. At the end of verse 7, Paul says that he was appointed as a preacher and an apostle, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So how is it that we pray for the lost? How is it that we proclaim the gospel to the lost? We do it in faith and we do it in truth. We pray in faith and share the gospel in faith, trusting that God indeed is a faithful Savior. We share the gospel in truth, not watering down the gospel or changing it to try to make it more appealing, but rather we boldly proclaim the gospel in truth, in faith, believing that God is indeed a faithful Savior. Am I in faith, faithfully praying and proclaiming the gospel? Are you in faith, faithfully praying and proclaiming the gospel that only comes through Jesus Christ? I want us to think about our right hand now. Going back to this idea of prayer. Left hand, we are praying for lost people we know. Right hand. How many fingers do we have on the right hand? I hope you still have five. My grandpa only had three. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, And pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. 
Man, I don't know about you, but when I think about Paul, I think about somebody that's already pretty bold. If the Apostle Paul asks for boldness in the proclamation of the gospel, you better believe I better be asking you to pray for me to be bold in the proclamation of the gospel. So as we think about our right hand, let's pray for self. Let's pray for family. Let's pray for our friends. Let's pray for our church body. Let's pray for our missionaries that we would each be bold in faithfully praying and in faithfully proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is reminding the church that the priority of the church is to be a great commission people. We are a great commission people by making it a priority to pray for the salvation of the lost and by boldly proclaiming the gospel to the lost. The priority of the church is to be a great commissioned people. Let us resolve this season anew to be a bold people, to be a faithful people, to be a proclaiming people, to be a praying people for the salvation of all who need to hear, from the highest of the highs in the society to the lowest of the lows. And may God receive the glory as people enter into the kingdom. Let's pray this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that as you've called us into your body, into fellowship with you, into the church, that you have not left us without instruction about who we are to be and how we are to conduct ourselves and the priority of activities that we are to be about. Father, just as we enter into this Christmas season, we are reminded that ultimately you are the mission-sending God, that you sent Jesus into our helpless state when we were dead and lost in our sins and trespasses. You, God, rich in mercy, intervened by sending your Son into the world that ultimately he would grow up and live a perfect and sinless life, that he would pay the penalty of our sin, that his sacrifice would be a ransom for the salvation of all who would believe, that he satisfied your wrath, that, Father, when we come to you by your grace and through faith in Christ Jesus, that we have the forgiveness of sin that we have the promise of eternal life, that we have the hope of glory. Father, may you help us because we are weak to be a people who understands that the priority of the church is to be about the Great Commission, that we would be a people who would be fervent and diligent in our prayers, that we would pray for the salvation of all people, our loved ones, our friends, our family, our colleagues, even our enemies, even those we disagree with. Father, that through that, your will would be accomplished and fulfilled, that you desire men to be saved. Father, help us to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel, that we would share the gospel message in truth, with accuracy, 
with diligence, with boldness, with faith, trusting that as we proclaim that what you say, that the gospel is the power for the salvation of all who believe, that we would trust in that promise that the gospel is powerful and that through the proclamation of the gospel, Lord, that you would call many into the kingdom. Father, we love you, we need you, and we need your help to love you more. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, brother.